We've been emphasizing through the book of Philippians how to enjoy life. And in chapter 2, it talks a lot about what it means to be a man, a godly man, you know, a good model of what men should be like. Now, as I was studying through this, the same principles work for women as well. Like as I hit these things, you're going to think, well, as a woman, you're going to feel like, oh, yeah, that relates to me too. These are things that are going to make me a better person as well. So even though the chapter kind of focused on these two men, I want everybody to apply it to their life. But I do want to talk a little bit about men, even though I'm saying women, you're not off the hook. But I do want to talk a little bit about men. There's a book. It's an older book. It's called Missing from Action, Vanishing Manhood in America. It's by Weldon Hardenbrook. And he, in this book, talks about false images of what a man is based on, pretty much based on what you see on television or on movies. And he talks about four images of men that he's seen repeatedly in movies or on television. And he feels like they give men the wrong impression of who we are, what we should be striving to be. So I want to look at those. Uh, The first one I want to call the macho maniac. You see them in movies. They're really macho. They deny their, their feelings. They ignore the law. They... Never worry, they never complain, they always are able to keep their cool, they never apologize, they can accomplish the impossible, whatever it is, they accomplish it. They're the tough guy that bullies the bullies, you know, and sometimes that's the view of what a man is if you watch certain movies. It's unrealistic, it's um, you know, almost like a superhero sometimes. The second type of man that he brings up in the book that he sees a lot that gives people a false impression of what a man is, is the great pretender. This person builds his self-esteem up because he really has low self-esteem. So he builds up his self-esteem by insulting his wife or by insulting his kids or by, by being that dad that's just bossy. And, but it's really to cover up what he feels about himself. And you see this in movies, and you see this in television shows, and maybe you've experienced that with people, you know, that are that way. And they feel like they rule their house because that's, that's one place. Maybe they don't feel like they're successful at work. So at home, you know, they try to rule their house. But their family, their kids usually don't like them. And obviously, that's not the type of dad or man I want to be. The third type that you see in a lot of uh, TV shows or movies would be the, the wimp. He's just a wimp. You know, the um, kids are constantly outwitting him. Um, the wife is bossing him around. Even the dog outwits him. You know, but, and they present him as like a wimpy guy that has no backbone whatsoever. Well, obviously, that's not the type of man that we want to be. And then the fourth image is, I would describe, describe them as the gender blenders. They're people that don't pretend to be masculine. Don't even want to be masculine. You know, they, they, it's not even their desire. They act feminine and uh, it's kind of like a reversal of roles and that's become their identity. So that's a fourth type of, of man that you see on television and movies a lot. But I think there's an alternative to all four of these men. And that would be God's model of manhood. And in Philippians where it's telling us how to enjoy our life, it talks about 
men, what kind of character they have. And I want to look at the character of these two men that Paul talks about. The first one is Timothy. And in Philippians 2.20, he starts by saying, I have no one else like him. We're going to get into what he's like then. If he's got no one else like Timothy, then what is he like? Tell us about who this guy is then. And then Philippians 2.29, with Epaphroditus, he says, hold men like him in the highest honor. So if we're going to hold men like him in the highest honor, then what was he like? What was so honorable about these guys? One thing I've learned is a man's greatness is not determined by the value of his wealth. It's determined by the wealth of his values. And these people have a wealth of values that we're going to look at when we look at Timothy and we look at Epaphroditus. So what kind of man is God looking for? What type of character does he want me to have? Well, number one in your notes, you can write the word compassion. God wants people to be compassionate. Like I said, the same thing that you think about men that he's going to talk about, it, it applies to women too. He's looking for men and women of compassion. You know, in your notes, men who put people before prophets. Put people before prophets. They care more about the people than making the money. That's a man of compassion toward others. You know, relationships are more valuable than things. You know, than making money. The Bible says, if I have not love, I'm nothing. Then he says, now abides these three things, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. So the Bible emphasizes having love. That's being compassionate toward people, caring about the needs of other people instead of just looking at my own needs or my own desires or my own goals. My goals don't become more important than people and those around me. You can be a success in the eyes of the world, but what this is saying is no matter how successful you are in the eyes of the world, if you don't love people, it's a failure. I've got to love people. I've got to care about people. God's looking for men of compassion. He's looking for women of compassion. Compassion is protecting the needs and the rights of other people. You know, everybody's rights. Even people's rights that are living a lifestyle that we disagree with. I might disagree with that person. But still, as a man of compassion, you protect people's rights. You're thinking about everybody. You're loving everybody. You care about everybody. You don't want anybody to be mistreated for any reason. You know, because love doesn't mistreat people for any reason. Even if I disagree with things, it's okay. You still have that compassion toward other people. Look at Philippians 2, 20 and 21. He is the only one who really cares about you. This is talking about Timothy. He is the only one who really cares about you. Everyone else is concerned only with his own affairs, not about the cause of Christ. It says, he's the only one that cares about you. He said, everybody else is concerned about their own stuff, not the cause of Christ. What is the cause of Christ? Caring about you. If he's the only one that cares about you, then he says, he's the only one that cares about the cause of Christ. That means the cause of Christ is caring for you. And he's saying the other men or the other people, everyone else is concerned only of their own affairs. They're not thinking about anybody but themselves. If I'm going to be a model man, if you're going to be a model woman, you have to have compassion. That means you literally care more about others than things. 
You're, really, you're not so caught up in your own life and what you're doing that you don't have compassion for those around you. In the Phillips translation, it says it this way. They are all wrapped up in their own affairs. They're so wrapped up in their own affairs that they don't care about anybody else. Their heart's not committed to the cause of Christ, which is caring for other people. It's a really sad thing when it says he is the only one. He's the only one that really cares. It seems like the rest of these people out here are just concerned about their own thing. They're just in it for themselves. Is it possible to get so wrapped up and commit it to your business that you neglect your family? Uh, you can, of course. Happens all the time. We get so caught up into our own affairs that we don't care about other people. And in that example, I'm not even talking about the stranger across the street that God wants you to care about. We get so wrapped up in our business that we don't care for our family sometimes. We neglect them. Maybe it's emotionally we neglect them. But we can pour so much of our life into something uh, and, and then lose the people that we love the most. A great example of this type of man or this type of person is in the story of the Good Samaritan. He's uh, traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he sees a guy that was robbed. He was mugged, and he was beat up. And he was a Samaritan, and the guy was a Jew. And they were kind of enemies. They didn't like each other. There was racial tension between these two groups because the Samaritan was a mixture of Jewish and, and other races. They were mixed in race. And the people that were Jewish kind of looked down on them. And also they were a mixture of religion. The Samaritan had Judaism mixed together with some of the false religions that were out there as well. So not only were they a mixed breed, but they had mixed religion and the Jews saw them as being bad because of that. You know, your religion's all messed up. You took our Judaism and you mixed it together with other things, and they despised them for that. So in the story, Jews don't really associate with Samaritans because of that. But the Samaritan sees a Jewish guy that got mugged. He picks him up, puts him on his donkey, uh, carries him to, to the hotel, pays the bill, takes him to the doctor, pays the doctor bill, and he had to take time out of his busy schedule, whatever, whatever he was doing, to do this. And didn't ask to be paid back or anything like that. And in that story, Jesus says, who showed mercy? Who showed mercy here? And it's a story of a person that's being rejected by that society, being the one that's loving. So compassion means to love people that treat you wrong. To love people that are against you. That they're prejudiced against you, or they're against you because of your faith, you know, and you love them anyway. You love them anyway because your love has nothing to do with what they're doing. Your love has everything to do with who you are. It's who I am. That's me. If I only love people that love me, then I'm not loving, right? Because it has nothing to do with my character. It has something to do with me responding. They're good to me, so I respond back good. They're bad to me, so I respond back bad. So it shows nothing about my character. It doesn't mean that I'm a man of compassion. But a man of compassion is going to be compassionate in spite of how the other people act. Because that's who I am. That's how I act. God's looking for men and women that have compassion. And that's what we see with Timothy here. Number two, consistency. In your notes, God's looking for men who put character 
before conformity. They're not afraid to be different. They're not afraid to go against the crowd. They're not afraid to say, I'm going to make a stand for the right thing, even though everybody else won't. And even though I might lose my job, I'm going to make a stand for the right thing. I'm not going to just cave in in order to fit in. In Philippians 2.22, it says, Timothy has proven himself. That word proven means his character had been tested over time. He had proven himself. He has served with me in the work of the gospel. His name, Timothy, means honors God or he who honors God. And he was living a life that honored God. He did not cave in to the pressure. He kept faithful to the cause of Christ no matter what everybody else was doing. If you don't stand for something, chances are you'll fall for anything. And he's willing to stand for something. There are people that fall for anything. I've heard some things that people have bought into, and you're thinking, how could they think that way? How could they believe such a thing that people fall for anything? What are you willing to stand for? Are you willing to stand for the right thing if it meant jeopardizing your job, but it was the morally right thing to do? What are you willing to stand for? You know, can you be bought? Can you be bought? Do you have conviction? Are you committed to your values? Or do you say, these are my values, but you live something else? Are you committed to your beliefs? Are you committed to your convictions? Or when time gets hard, you kind of like hide them because you want to blend in. You don't want to make the stand. There's a lot of men that won't commit. They won't commit to things. A halfway commitment is no commitment at all. You know, commitment says, I'm in. I'm going to do it all the way. I'm going to stand for the right thing. You've heard me say this before. It's better to die for what's right than to live for what's wrong. And if you look at history, a lot of the most horrible things that have happened in history have happened because of men and women not willing to die for the right thing. They're not willing to make a stand and say, this is wrong. They cave in, they conform, and then horrible things can happen because nobody's willing to make a stand and say, no, this isn't going to happen. We always need to be a nation and a people that are willing to die for the right thing, willing to live for the right thing. Chances are, if you're living for the right thing, you probably won't have to die for the right thing. In Proverbs 10, 9, it says, The man of integrity walks securely, but he who takes crooked paths will be found out. I think that's a sign of a godly man, is you're walking in integrity. That means you have no secrets. It's not like your private life has something secret that you need to cover up, because if everybody found out that, about that, I'd be ruined. That's a, that's a person without integrity. You want to be able to be an open book that there's no, you know, secrets that somebody can bring out. There's nothing worse when a politician gets elected and then all the secrets from their past start popping out and popping out and popping out. I mean, that's really a horrible, horrible thing. And I've seen this with lots of politicians. And a lot of times they end up, it usually happens when they're running for whatever they're running for. And a lot of times these things come up and they end up having to drop out. Sometimes you find out that they're in an affair in the moment. 
It's not even in the past. It's still running for election, and they're having an affair at the exact same time. So these are things that are common, and it's sad when we see these things. Is my public life consistent with my private life? Is the things that you're seeing the real thing? Or do I have a secret life going on over here? Proverbs 27 says, It is a wonderful heritage to have an honest father. To have an honest father. I think inconsistent men produce insecure children. And I believe inconsistent men produce an insecure marriage. Because the difference, the opposite of being inconsistent is to be committed. So if my wife knows I'm committed, she feels secure in the marriage. If my commitment seems wavering, she's going to be insecure. If my kids know that I'm committed, they feel secure in the home. If they don't know what dad's going to show up, you know, because one day good dad shows up and next day bad dad shows up, you know, angry dad that's upset about what's happened at work, so he brings all that anger, it makes them insecure. They don't know who's coming home. These are things that men and women, we have to be, have commitment. We have to be consistent in the way that we live. The next thing that we see with these men is cooperation. Cooperation. God's looking for men who put cooperation before competition. It's always better when possible to work together than to fight against the other person. You know, Paul recognized he would get more accomplished working together with other people. He didn't believe in being a lone ranger. That's why he has Epaphroditus and Timothy ministering with him. You know, working together as a team can accomplish way more. You sometimes see businesses, and they'll either do some sort of merger or they're merged together on an idea, and they both profit tremendously, where if they didn't work together, they couldn't have. You know, we're going to get this software, and we're going to make it work for yours, and that's going to get us more software, and it's going to get people to buy your stuff more, too. And they pull it together, and then both companies profit. You always do better when you can come up with something like that than not sharing knowledge and just relying on the knowledge I have. The knowledge I have is so limited. But if I can share knowledge with other people and we can grow together, there's something about that that really makes you successful. In Philippians 2.25, it says, I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier. He describes him in three ways. I believe that this is a way to describe what God calls us to be. He calls him a brother. That gives us the idea that we're family. We're brothers and sisters. That's the idea behind the church, is that we're family. There's a lot of things that you'll be willing to do for family. Sometimes in the schools, you know, because of the way that kids are, you'll see a kid that's a little bit different and he's getting picked on by other, other kids. He's getting picked on, maybe made fun of, because maybe he's just a little bit different. Maybe he processes things differently, and the other kids might seem as strange or odd or whatever, but you know how kids will pick on them. But almost every family has people in their family that sometimes you have people that are peculiar. I heard a guy saying, 
Everybody has people that are peculiar in their families. Everybody does. I was sitting there thinking, who's in my family? Who's in my family that's peculiar? And he said, if you can't think of who it is, it's probably because it's you. (laughs) Okay, now I get it, you know. It's me. But when you see people as brothers and sisters, you just say, well, that's just the way Uncle Bob is. You know what I mean? It's just the way Uncle Bob is, and you accept him, and you love him. But if you don't see people as brothers and sisters, you can reject. God wants us to say, this is my brother. This is my sister. That's just the way Uncle Bob is. We accept him. Everybody loves Uncle Bob, just like you would in your family. The church is a family. The other word that you see here is he calls him a worker. And the church is a fellowship. We're working together. We're serving together. We have the same task. We're in it together. It's not something that we just do on Sunday and go home. One of the reasons I'm excited about the potluck today is it's a sense of we're doing something together. We're eating together. It's something more than going to church and then back home. A third word that he said is a soldier. He describes this as a soldier because we're in a fight. We're in a fight. I believe the devil's real. Some people don't believe the devil's real. I believe he's real. I believe there's a real spiritual fight that's going on. You know, and... We need to protect each other. We need to support each other. We need to defend each other. We're in a culture that sometimes goes against our values. And we, people need support. People need encouragement. Especially one of the things I love about this church is the youth group. Because the kids in that youth group, they're getting support. They're getting encouragement. Because sometimes they go to school and they feel like their values are so different than the other kids. But then they come here... And they have guys that are like, right now I think all the leaders are are guys right now, but they're like, you know, 23, uh, 20, 21 years old, you know. And middle schoolers and high schoolers look up to that age. And these are guys that are really going for God, and they're normal guys. They're guys that you look up to. They're athletes. uh, One of the guys uh, does MMA fighting, and you think, like, wow, and he loves God? And uh, they all have wrestling backgrounds and been involved in sports and stuff. But they're, type of, they're the type of guys that the teenagers look up to and say, I want to be like that. They need that. They need some sort of support. They need some, some sort of encouragement. Because when they go to school, sometimes they feel like they have these values and nobody else does. I'm the oddball. I'm the one that believes this way. And I'm the one that believes in living a certain type of lifestyle. And the other kids think that I'm weird for being that way. Life's a battle. People need support. They need encouragement. They say that 10% of Christian men have close friends. I thought, that's low. You would think because we're in churches, we'd have really good friends. But they were saying that the majority of Christian men, they're just working, doing their business, and they go to church on Sunday, and they don't ever really connect and have friends. They would say, well, I'm really close to my wife. But the statistic I was talking about was talking about like with other men, like you have really good friendships with other men. They said only 10% of Christian men have close, you know, really good friendships with other men. Most of them, it's just their wife. That's not healthy. We need men because what happens is it's easy as a man. If I don't have the support of other men and I don't feel close to them, it's easy for me as a man to feel like I'm alone. Am I the only man that believes in 
you know, not having an affair with what I'm hearing everybody say. And you want to stand up and, and say something and not feel like you're the only one being laughed at. You want to be able to say something and somebody else stand up, hey, I'm with you. You know, you want support. And these are things that matter. So it's important to have other men that have the same value that I know. I don't just know about them. They're actually my friend is important. Judges 20.11 says something, a powerful verse, I believe. So all the men of Israel got together and united as one man against the city. And in this story, it's talking about when the men got united, they had power and success and victory. And it made me think, that's like a church. If the men in the church, and this time I'm specifically talking about men, if the men in the church got united and said, let's do something great for God, can you imagine what would happen? Do you know in most churches, the women tend to already do that. There's a higher percentage of women that step up in churches across America that step up and say, let's make something happen. But in most churches, there's very few men that do that. With the men in this room, if we stood together and said, let's do something great, it'd be unbelievable. I think the power that would come. But it's hard to do that if we don't connect, if we don't have the relationships built. And that's why I think it's so important for men, they're Christians, to have Christian friends that they're close to, that they really know that you have that support. Number four, commitment. Men who put the cause of Christ before comfort. The cause of Christ before comfort. Here's what Philippians 2.25-27 says. Epaphroditus is your messenger whom you sent to take care of my needs. He was ill and almost died, but God had mercy on him. Paul's in prison. He's in Rome. The people in Philippi, they're, they're a good church. They're sending people over to him uh, to help him out. One of these people that he sends is Epaphroditus. Uh, they actually took an offering to, to send him money to give him some support for some things he needed. But he had to travel. Epaphroditus had to travel 800 miles back in that day. And it would have taken him about six weeks the way that they traveled because they traveled by foot in those days. So in this traveling, he eventually got sick somehow. We're not exactly sure what he caught or what happened. But he got so sick, he, was, he almost died. But do you know why? Because he was so persistent and so committed to making sure that he got there to give Paul what he needed that he kept going even though he was sick. Even though he was sick, he kept going. He wanted to make sure that nothing would happen where Paul's needs wouldn't be met. So he was persistent, and it almost killed him to do that. Now, sometimes that can be foolish. Sometimes that can be foolish, you know, uh, to, to keep going when you're sick and you need to take a break. But I think the point that he's bringing out is there's a lot of people that would start great and not finish. Like they don't finish. It gets inconvenient, so they stop. It gets expensive, so they stop. It gets uncomfortable, so they stop. You know, it starts requiring an effort, so they stop. And what I think what he's saying is, look at this guy. He wouldn't even stop when he was dying. Even when he was dying, he wouldn't stop because he's so committed to doing what he believes God wants him to do. There's something about that. How committed am I to doing what I believe God wants me to do? 
if God calls me to do something and it gets a little rough, do I quit? You know, maybe somebody hurts my feelings, so I quit. Or maybe, you know, it's going to require an effort, so do I quit? No, don't quit. You just keep going. You have a commitment that won't stop you. James 2.17 says, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. God's looking for people action. He wants you to go for it. Put action behind it. One of the complaints I've heard in marriage counseling is from the wife is, my husband at work, he's just so committed. That's a word that they'll use. Like, he's so committed. He gives it 100% and this and that. But when it comes down to our marriage and the family stuff, he's just, you know, he doesn't give that effort. It's like he doesn't even really try that much. And, it's, and it makes her feel like he loves his job. I wish he would love me like that. I wish I could find a man that loved me. Because she could see in his effort how much. Now, a lot of the time, the guy feels like he loves her in his heart. We feel like it. Like, no, honey, I love you. I really love you. But people need to see it. My wife needs to see that I love her. You know, it can't be just something I say, but when she sees how dedicated I am to work, she says, wow, he gives it 100%. But when it comes to her, ah, I give it 50%. That's not good. That's getting the wrong message out. And my kids, my kids need to, they, they need to know that I'm committed. They need to see it. I'm not talking about our heart. I'm talking about our action. I've not met a man that doesn't, like, it's been very rare for me to meet a man that in his heart doesn't say, no, she's number one. And the kids are number one. That's why I do all this stuff. It's for them. It's not for me. I mean, this is a common thing for me to hear. And that's where their heart is. That's where our hearts are as men a lot of times. But what I'm trying to say is, your, your wife needs to see it. Your wife needs to see it. I've even seen women sometimes that are so pursuing something at work that they'll neglect their family. And the kids don't feel like they're number one. The family doesn't feel like they're number one. It's not just men that do these things. Number five is courage. Courage. Men who will put service before security. I put this like that because today's value system seems to be, you know, provide security for yourself as the goal. And there's nothing bad in that. But sometimes we make that a higher priority than serving God, you know, than doing something that God wants you to do. You know, would anybody become a missionary if the goal of life is security? Absolutely not. You want to do it. And I think of people like, even like people like Mother Teresa, you know, thinks, you're talking about living a very risky life, working with the poor, working with disease, you know, what if you catch something that they have and you're taking a total risk, but would any of those great things have happened if she wasn't willing to take a risk? When security becomes your goal, that's unhealthy because faith, faith is taking a step of faith when you don't know what's going to happen. There's an insecure, uh, insecure feeling of, 
you know, God, I'm just doing this by faith. I'm going to go for it. You want it to be an educated faith, but there's still faith involved. You don't know what's going to happen. I don't think you can serve God. It says it's impossible to please God without faith. And faith means doing some things and because you believe it, but you don't know what the outcome's going to be. Like I was saying earlier, I'm going to make a stand for the right thing, and it might cost me my job. That's scary. That's scary. That takes courage. God is looking for men and women that have courage. There's too many people that maybe have religion but no courage. I'm thinking if faith is a central part of, of Christianity, that means courage is a central part because you can't separate courage from faith. And if you've separated your courage from your faith, it isn't faith. You're doing something that you know you can do. That takes zero faith. To try to do something bigger than yourself that you know you can't do, you've got to rely on a power greater than you. That takes faith. What God is saying is courage. That's a godly attribute. Be men and women of courage. Look at Philippians 2, 29 30. Welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor men like him because he almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life, circle risking, risking his life to make up for the help you could not give me. Risking his life. You know, he put his life in hazard. That word is actually, in their language, it's a gambling term. It'd be like saying he put everything on that one roll of the dice. It's that type of word, that word risking. So what he's doing is, so Paul is saying Epaphroditus gambled everything on the gospel. He mean, that means he gambled everything he had on this belief that God is real, that Jesus died on the cross for his sins, and this is what he, God wanted him to do. God has called me to go to Paul, and I'm going to do it. And he gambled everything, including risking his life, in order to do it. And that's why he's being praised in the Bible. And that's why he's saying, how to enjoy life. Do you realize that that means to enjoy life, you have to have a risk a little bit? Sometimes to enjoy life, you have to get on the roller coaster. You know, that, people go to roller coasters because they're trying to enjoy themselves. I don't enjoy it anymore, <laughs> roller coasters. I used to. But they're trying to enjoy themselves because it feels a little risky. You know, it feels a little scary. And what it's saying is, how to enjoy life. And one of the things in that book is to be a man, a woman of courage. You're willing to risk. You're willing to go for it. You're willing to do something that's scary. So faith without goals, faith without purposes, faith without challenges is no faith at all. That's no faith at all. God says have purposes, have goals, have challenges. Because church was never meant just to be a, a safe place to meet, to get away from the world. That's not what it's about. I've been to churches that feel like that. It's a safe place to go to protect me from the outside world. No, that's not what it's about. It's to give you the courage to attack the world, to go out there and make a difference and not be afraid of the world. The worst thing about faith could be is if you're going there because you're afraid of the world. It, the whole point is that as believers, we want the courage to be out there and to make a difference, that the world's better because you and I are here. That when we walk out of these walls, the world's a better place because we're there. Because we're, we have courage. 
We're doing things. We're making the right stands. Look at Romans 12, 1 and 2. So then, my brothers, because of God's great mercy to us, offer yourselves as a living sacrifice to God. A living sacrifice. Do you remember what they would do at the sacrifice? They would take the lamb, and the lamb would be a symbol of Jesus. And they would place their sins on the lamb, and, the, and then they would sacrifice the lamb, and the lamb would die for their sins. Then they cook it, and they eat, and they have a great feast. Everybody eats and has a good time. But, uh, but there's a symbol there. You know, the, the symbolism was Jesus, you know, is the Lamb of God. He's dying. He's paying the penalty that we deserve. You know, so it says a living sacrifice. Well, what does that mean? A living sacrifice means you're alive on the altar. It says offer yourselves as a living sacrifice to God, dedicated to his service and pleasing to him. A living sacrifice. Don't conform to the standards of this world, but let God transform you inwardly by a complete change of your mind. The interesting thing about a living sacrifice is a living sacrifice can go up on that altar, but he can walk off anytime he wants to. He's still alive. And there's too many times that maybe on a Sunday we say, God, I'm 100% committed to you. I'm, I'm there. That's putting yourself on the altar. You say, God, I'm 100% yours. You place yourself on the altar. And then on Monday we crawl off and we maybe go back and not live what we believe, what we desire, what we feel like God has called us to be. And to live what we're called to be, it takes courage. It takes courage to stay on the altar. It takes courage to be a living sacrifice. Offer yourself as a living sacrifice. What am I sacrificing? If I'm a living sacrifice, what am I sacrificing? I'm sacrificing selfishness. For loving God, loving others. I'm putting others above myself. It takes courage to do that. Because everything in me wants to protect myself. Maybe financially protect myself. In every single way, everything wants to protect myself when living for God might mean taking my finances and helping somebody else who's worse off. But it's scary to do. Because if I give that to them and I help them, what's that going to do for me? To live for God, to love your neighbor as yourself, equal to yourself. We love ourselves a lot. To love your neighbor as yourself, what would it mean? It could be big, big sacrifices, more than what we could imagine. It's easy to say, I love my neighbor as myself. It's not easy to do. It's easy to say that on a Sunday and then walk off the altar on Monday. And when I think of um, God's called us to have courage, and that's what it means to enjoy life. I think, well, what have I seen the opposite of that? If God is saying, it takes courage to enjoy life. So you got to get out there and try something big, like goals and go for something big in your life, something that you never thought you could do. When I think of that, what's the opposite? People that are bored with life. That's not enjoying life. People that are unfulfilled. I, I meet people that dedicate hour after hour after hour to a job, and they, they hate their job. That's kind of like a hell on earth type of thing, you know, because when you have to put 40 hours a week into a job and you hate it, that can't be exciting. I've met Christians that have lost their spirit of adventure. That means they've lost their faith. It means they've lost their faith. They still might believe there's a God, but they've lost their faith, their faith in how they live. You know, they, they've, 
they're not willing to risk anymore. They've lost their challenges, their goals. What do they have to live for? I believe you could be 100 years old and still have something to live for. There's never that time that you say, well, I'm done. I've done all. It's now somebody else's job. No. God wants you to always have goals. There's always something he can do great in your life. In Mark 8, 35, it says, only those who give away their lives for, for my sake and for the sake of the good news will ever know what it means to really live. So if I haven't given away my life for God, I haven't lived. I haven't really lived, which means I have not really enjoyed life. So I can't enjoy life apart from saying, God, I'm 100% yours. God, I'm 100% in. There's no halfway commitment. I mentioned this a few weeks back, I think, about Nikolai Lenin when he spoke and he says, give me 100 men and we will change the world. He apparently got them. Because from that point on, uh, communism spread from that dozen people that he originally had to two-thirds of the world. Apparently, he got 100 men that were committed and more. That's a man that got a few people committed to something that was ended up being a bad idea. <laughs> Overall, a bad idea. And you think, like, if somebody can just be, have such a passion for a bad idea, but it has such a passion that two-thirds of the world followed that bad idea, what can we do with a good idea? What can we do with a good idea? God wants us to risk. He wants us to have courage. We want to have more courage than Lenin had because we're, we're doing something good. It's going to make a, a positive difference. In 2 Chronicles 16.9, it says, The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth that he may show himself strong in the heart of those whose heart is perfect toward him. So it says the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth. In, in other words, God is looking for men and women that would be serious, that would say, man, you know, God, I'm in. God, I'm in. He's looking for people. He's looking for us. He's looking for us. The only reason God won't do something great in your life and use your life for greatness is if you don't want him to. He won't make you do it. But if you say, okay, God, I'm in. I don't know what that means because that's the scary part. That's the risk. I don't know what that means 100%, but God, I'm committed to be a person of compassion. I'm going to be consistent. I'm going to cooperate. I'm going to be committed. I'm going to have courage. I'm afraid. You know, courage does not mean that you're not afraid. Someone that's not afraid might be a lunatic because there's things to be afraid of. Courage means you go for it even though you're afraid. I'm scared to death, but I'm going to go for it. And he's saying, you know, I'm going to do these things, God. I'm going to do these. That's the people that God's looking for. God will use your life to do great things if you let him. It's up to you. You've got to let him. You've got to say, okay, God, I'm going to let you. And then you know what he'll do? He'll look at your gifts. He'll look at your personality type. He'll look at the abilities that you have. He'll look at your heart's passion. He'll look at the experiences that you've had, and he'll use those to shape you 
to be the best you that you can be. He's not going to turn you into somebody else. He's not going to all of a sudden start giving you certain gifts that you're just not wired that way. It's going to be 100% you exactly as you are being 100% used for God's glory in great ways. It doesn't mean that everybody has to join the mission field. Okay, let's all give our lives to God. Okay, I'm going to go to this country. You're going to go to that country. It doesn't mean that. It means exactly where you are, unless God's personally called you to, to go, but it's going to be exactly who you are serving God in your world because God cares about your family more than you do. God cares about your friends more than you do. God cares about the people around you at work more than you do. And he will use you right in your world to affect the world to make it a better place. God wants men and women that will make a stand to do whatever it takes to be what he wants them to be. With that, let's pray. Lord, we desire to be the type of people that you're looking for. Today, we're making a commitment to be people of compassion who put people before prophets. We want to be consistent. We want to put our character before conformity. Lord, we want to cooperate. We don't want to be in competition. It's not about winning and losing, God. It's about being on your team, working together to be the best that we can be. Lord, we want to be people of commitment and not just give in to comfort. We want to have courage, the courage to serve and do what you've called us to do. Even when we're afraid, even though it's a risk, even though we'll be outside of our comfort zone, Lord, we want to make a stand for you publicly in every way. But Lord, we understand what that means. When we're making a stand for you, it's not on the street corner preaching or something. It's loving you and loving other people. That's the stand that you want us to make. And we want to be unashamed about that. We want to be known as people that love you and love them. When Christians be what you've called us to be, the world does get better. Lord, we offer ourselves as living sacrifices to be used in that way. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.